Hi everybody, I'm Michael A. I'm the president of Liftport Group. If you've been following along, we've been doing these shows for about four months now, twice a week. And the focus of the Dare Greatly podcast is to kind of be that intersection, that cross point between, it's all about space, but space business, space infrastructure, uh, national policy, and the money, the money of space. So we're looking a lot at the commercialization of space and how it's transforming right before our eyes. We usually bring in, we have three different formats. We have a guest speaker, a guest uh, conversation, a policy show, and a news roundup. Uh, today is probably my favorite kind of show where we've got a great guest. I'm really looking forward to, to that. Uh, we'll bring him on in just a moment. In big news, I'm guessing everybody has heard that uh, Virgin, uh, Virgin Orbit, is in this weird free fall. We might talk about that if Raphael's up for it because I'd like to hear his perspective on recent news. And Andreessen Horowitz just decided to jump into the space game. So that's, I think, kind of new information. I'm going to post that to the chat here. There's a pretty interesting article. Um, with that, I don't want to take away time from our guest. Uh, I'm going to bring in Raphael. Thanks for thanks for being Hi. awake in the middle of the night here. I appreciate it. Thank you. Sure, sure. Uh, Glad to be here. We want to start with and and trying to be respectful of the clock in the middle of the night for you. We want to start with some of your background, your personal background. How did you get into this this space stuff in the first place? Why did you get into kind of the space money side of the business? Tell us tell us about your background. How did you get here? It's, it's, it's basically what you call the money side. The money side is my business. It's always been. I started in investment banking. Then I switched over to uh, what we call prop desks, proprietary trading desks and hedge funds. So, so I am from the money side, added the space side. And the space side kind of came by accident. Almost it. So I, um, you get a chance. And you got your you got your money chops in Zurich in in the financial field in Switzerland. Yes. No, no, not at all. Start start in New York, uh, places like London and Tokyo. Okay. But in any event, I had a chance to to do some work on SpaceX about six seven years ago, and I hadn't looked at the space sector before. Um, okay. So I thought, well, it's very very sort of um, interesting field from an emotional point of view. Let's say, um, who, who doesn't like space exploration? I hadn't thought about it from very much from the business side and I had a chance to do this work on SpaceX and I realized that we were nearing an inflection point in the space sector uh, in the sense that really the work SpaceX was and continues to do is driving down costs for the access of space so much that really changed had a potential to change everything and that hadn't been clear to me that became clear to me and then I thought well that's interesting and I started doing more and more work and then I realized that the launch costs weren't the only thing coming down. Pretty much everything else was coming down as well. And then I was like, well, and and and, and not by small amounts, by you know, some cases by orders of magnitude. Yeah. And I realized, well, I was a journalist investor, you know, investing in many different industries, and I have never seen an industry where costs go down orders of magnitude and it doesn't have a dramatic effect. And then combine that right. with the fact that space was just, from a personal point of view, much more interesting than anything else I was doing. I said, well, you know, life's short. I should basically switch everything I'm, what I'm doing to, to the space sector. Wow. Wow. Uh, are you able to talk about what you did for SpaceX or is that proprietary? It's that's that's more or less proprietary. Okay. Okay. All right. Cool. So this is really kind of an, a relatively recent shift in your life. And it was driven by the numbers and having your your eyes opened by this kind of new 
industry to you, new new to you industry. Uh, why why kind of change your whole life for it? Like, what was the what was the thing that says, okay, this is the reason to, to shift the path that I'm on? Well, again, I think it's a couple. It's basically a combination of two things. One, this is just a you know, it's 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 a nice place to be, the space sector, in the sense that it's you know, it's an interesting topic. It's an emotional, to- emotional in a positive sense topic. Sort of like who doesn't the excitement? Who doesn't like the excitement of a rocket launch right. or the excitement of somebody flying to the moon or something like that? And then, secondly, I thought the economic opportunity could be the, the long-term economic opportunity could be enormous. And again, this type of these kind of macro trends, I developed a thesis on these dramatic cost decreases. These are not things that have all of the time in, in many industries. I mean, it's sort of a cliche comparison by now, but I've used this comparison almost for five or six years, which is that you know, we may be at a similar point to where basically the internet was sometime in the mid-90s that you have really dramatic trends in place, but they're only just starting and it will take some time to really work their way through the system and work their way through the economy. And some people don't realize that. Some people think like, well, you know, there hasn't so much, so much excitement about space and um, we had a spec bubble and, and that sort of burst deservedly burst and are we really this early on and yeah we're very early on i can see this in, in in many different ways which i can talk about so first emotional factor second uh, giant economic opportunity and, and thirdly and maybe most importantly is i do believe that space technology can help to solve many of humanity's big challenges and from from food security or climate to health security many other things and again that's not something that's i think clear to many people yet we hear the phrase sometimes going to space to make living on earth better and i i think that that's uh i think to me that encapsulates why we're doing this, right? There's only a small fraction, a sliver of humanity that's going to go to space right now. Maybe in the future, more people, I hope. But the real world implications of the technology development, of the technology transfer, this diffusion, this ubiquitous diffusion of technology throughout the whole global economy, uh, I, I think that's that's pretty important. It doesn't get talked about enough. So is that one of the things that you account as, as part of your, your thesis when you make investments? And l- let's talk about the fund a little. Sure. No, that's absolutely part of the thesis. Again, that space can probably, space technology can help probably almost any sector I can think of. And so I think it's going to become as ubiquitous as other big technologies like artificial intelligence or something like that. But again, this this process is just at the very beginning. If you go to your average, even significant size non-aerospace company and talk to them about space, they'll probably still look at you like, why, why are you here? Why are you talking to me? Like, what can I do with space? I mean, it's slowly changing, but this is going to take a few years. And that's normal. You know, I, again, I'm old enough to remember the, the internet. And so of course, by definition, pretty much every company right now uses the internet in some way, but that wasn't the case in 1995, right? It took a few years for this to I could take a more recent example, right? I started dabbling in. So I actually, I went back mid-career to get a master's degree in artificial intelligence. And so this was, I went back to university in 2013 and the majority of people asked me like, and I was coming off a hedge fund, right? Majority of people asked me like, why are you going back to school? Like, why are you studying artificial intelligence? This seems completely like obscure and like niche. And I'm like, well, I think it's going to be very important. We're 10 years later and here's ChatGPT. So I think the same thing is going to happen with space. It's going to take a few years. I know we're early. Good to be early. Sometimes it's bad to be too early, but I think we're hopefully just around the right time. And this is a a thesis. Um, I do think that one of the right ways to participate in all of this is by having an early stage investment fund. You know, if, again, I use the internet example. If you had a time machine 
and you could go back to the mid 90s and kind of decide what you want to do around this internet thing short of using real like 2020 hindsight and say yeah okay i'll be jeff bezos the founding amazon i mean that's kind of stupid right but you'd say like okay you know i'd start an early stage investment fund and i hope to catch something like an amazon or facebook or something like that that's going to be good enough yeah so this is this is sort of the rationale for the fund uh, this is something we started as a project about three years ago a little bit over three years ago three or four is three it's three years i thought it was a little older than that. The, the fund invest the actual fund structures are started about three years ago. And can you talk about the structure, how many limited partners you're, you have, how big the fund is, what your typical investment looks like? The funds are basically the investment mandate. It's space only, at least in the current fund. But really anything that is legitimately space related, we can look at. So we can look at all of the traditional stuff that people will know, like satellite communications and earth observation, GNSS and launchers and satellite integrators. And we can absolutely also look at some of the, let's call the more recent or uh, more recently evolving businesses like you know, space tourism or in space manufacturing or other called OSM businesses. We could theoretically also look at stuff like lunar business models and we look at them all of the time. We haven't made any investments yet. So we can look at everything that's uh, legitimately a space-related company. What we won't do is something just, just using space somewhere tangentially, right? So we're not going to invest in a ridiculous example, but this is something like a real example that other venture capitalists once told me. Like we won't invest in like a food delivery company because they use GPS to deliver the majority of the revenues have to basically be enabled by space in a way. And I, I could kind of go into more detail what that actually means. And then we invest um, stage-wise, we in, in the current fund, we invest very early. So we go in seed or pre-seed. And then geographically, we are technically global. Practically, this means there's still a lot in the US because by many metrics, that's probably about two-thirds of the global space market. There's an increasing amount in Europe, for sure. Um, there's some stuff in other places. So we got investments in Israel. Uh, we just made one in India. We could look at other places like, for example, we are constantly looking, but we haven't made investments yet in places like Japan or Australia or Singapore or Latin America. It's easier to talk about the places we don't look at, so we basically don't look at anything that's um, countries which are uh, strategic competitors of the US. Uh, how, how many investments do you have? How many what, How many companies are in your portfolio? In total, I think we're now at 16. Okay. Uh, and then what is your typical, you said seed and pre-seed sizes, so what, what size investments are pretty typical for you? So we typically write checks of like, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars up to a million. Up to a million. Okay, so there's 16 companies in your portfolio, a couple hundred thousand up to a million invested. What's your time horizon? You talked about this as the early days of the internet. You know, the internet's had 30 years to evolve. Most funds have a 10-year, maybe a 12-year extension. What do you hope to have happen if you started three years ago? What do you hope to happen seven years from now? And, and you're right. So our fund has a 10-year life you know, with some extension options, which I do believe is the correct lifetime for a deep tech fund. Also other types of deep tech other than space. I think it's 10 years is the correct time. Um, also, you can't really go much beyond that. I mean, the, like, the market won't take that. And some, I think there's a couple of people who have 15 year, 15 year funds. But 10 years is some piece of normal fund lifetime. Of course, we're hoping for you know some sort of exit of our portfolio companies and the traditional exit routes. It could be an IPO, obviously not right now in the current markets, um, even though interestingly, as people may know, we have a, there will be an IPO attempt, small IPO of uh, Office space company in Japan, uh, iSpace. You know, markets are the markets. You know, that's what I've been doing all of my life. The markets, the markets, the markets, the spare markets, the markets come back at some point in time. And 
saying there's going to be an IPO window again. Spec window will probably will take another few years to come back because lots, lots of people lost lots of money, of course, on that. So um, IPO one exit route, acquisitions, of course, and this is probably something we will see more of in the near term. Consolidation, uh, much required consolidation, and we're already starting to see that. That's a recent example: a vast space station company acquiring launcher propulsion company. And I think we will see more and more of that. And the acquisitions will come from you know many different directions. I mean, some of it will be big existing aerospace companies buying additional products capabilities or even people just be aqua hires it could be newer companies like vast is not a traditional aerospace company it's actually relatively new still they're buying somebody to think um if it's one of them and it could be this we haven't seen that much yet but i, I believe we will see it it could be actually non-space strategic buyers you know, i have a hunch some, that's where we're going to go right uh, organizations like john deere well i mean google has done it actually already in the past but um it could, it could be one of the big sort of you know tech giants yeah. could be uh, giant companies in non-space industries like like John Deere or acquiring basically once they realize John Deere is from all I can tell far down this curve compared relatively to other people um, once these companies start realizing that space capability can actually bring them value sure it's kind of a no-brainer for a company like Apple that's sitting on you know half a trillion dollars of cash to decide, okay, let's let's make our phones a little bit better by providing comms to everyone, right? That, that's kind of a no-brainer. I'm a little surprised it hasn't happened, but that, I do definitely expect that to uh, to be one of the things that comes in into play soon. Um, I, I think it's going to be. I, I think yeah. in the Wild Wild West stage, I was I was in the internet. I had a small internet company back in 1990. And just to watch things change and change and change and how quickly, uh, I think we're absolutely at that same spot. So let me ask you a couple of questions about launch, because I know that there are some venture funds that will not invest in launch. Uh, have you have you exited out? Are you willing to hear launch proposals? So we are always, we try to always talk to everybody, unless we think the company is uh, truly like, you know, not a serious company. But if we, if we leave the founders as serious i mean we obviously we we have our utmost respect for the founders i've, I've been an entrepreneur at some point in time myself and, and arguably i'm one again now on the side which we can talk about but having those guts to become an entrepreneur and if you're doing it for the right motivations it's, it's, an, it's an incredibly tough journey so we respect the founders and we will listen to everybody's story now having said all of that right you can have the right motivations and we will still then respectfully disagree with the founders that maybe the market they chose is very very tough yeah. tougher than they think and i think that's where launch probably in our view and in i hazard to say probably many other space vcs and, and journalists tech vcs who engage in spaces views as well that you know the launch market has so on paper there's something like close to 200 launch companies at least like the last time we did this right. um the statistic now in all fairness the vast majority of that are powerpoint companies right, right? so you can actually exclude quite a few of them right. out. They are probably left with, I don't know, two or three dozen or something like that. And then what's going to happen? I think you have to then really start segmenting the market and you have to start doing work and understanding where can each one of these companies really credibly get demand from. And so you'll have one, one end of the market. You'll have, of course, SpaceX, right? And and I will tell you in terms of like soaking up market demand, and, and this is SpaceX even in its current configuration, right? Even before we talk about Starship, of course, it's going to be a complete step right. change in, in capacity and capability. But even right now, then, I mean, because we're demand coming from right? demands from the governments and then there's demand from commercial operators including startups right i can certainly say from what i see in our portfolio and companies that we know well adjacent to our portfolio that most of the commercial companies seem perfectly happy to write on spacex or write or, or take the spacex including the spacex 
rideshare, right? So I'm sort of always a little bit cautious with all of these arguments that typically fly around from the small launch operators who are like, oh, but we're so much better than rideshare because you go when you need it to where you need it. And like, fine, but then I think you have to dig a little bit deeper and we won't have the time. You could spend an entire one of these episodes just on this, right? But I mean, then I think you really have to, that's a nice argument to make, but I think it deserves deeper analysis. It's like, okay, well, how many people really need this type of really responsive launch? Because all of the companies, not all of, but most of the companies I know seem perfectly happy to fly on SpaceX rideshare. And when I talk to them, they're not complaining like, "Oh, I wish there was something else where I, right. you know, I right. didn't need to use rideshare." Um, I can I can see the use case some auto responsive launch. I mean, certainly for you know government, certain really important replacement of uh, strategically important satellites or something like that. But I'm, so I'm cautious with, with that argument for the small launches. Then I do believe sort of on the positive argument side for the for the smaller launches that because of everything else that's going on in the world governments worldwide have clearly woken up to the fact that space is strategic and so, so, I mean, everybody has seen in Ukraine how important the communications, the right. satellite communications capability is, right? Starlink helping to maintain communications and also how important GNSS is and how important remote sensing is. So governments rightfully saying like, well, it seems like we should have our own capability. Like we should have us, we should have our own SATCOM, GNSS and remote sensing capability. And for GNSS, this has been happening for a while that you have various national regional GNSS constellations. Um, but it's now also happening with SATCOM, right? You may have seen the European Union will wants its own secure communications network. They don't want to be caught being reliant on Starlink or somebody else. And it's also happening in remote sensing, where we've seen a number of sovereign countries starting to order, basically, uh, imaging satellites, and, and more so than in the past. Then all of that, if you think that's a strategic, it's not enough to build your constellations if you then still rely on some other country's launcher, right? So I think there is an argument that we will see a number of what I'd call sovereign launchers, yeah. right, tied to certain countries or certain regions. And this, this may be well be a reason why some companies then can survive, because they will have this government yeah, demand. Okay. I can I can see certain companies, you know, like maybe a couple of companies in Europe, a company in Australia, and certain other places on the launch side. Now, and then, sorry, I'm, I'm talking a lot, but just kind of com- coming all the way back. So are we looking at launch or not? So like, yes, we're constantly talking to people. Maybe we'll find somebody who are comfortable investing. But what I just described basically leaves us with, well, okay, you will invest in SpaceX for the launch side, but SpaceX is not a pure launch company anymore. It is not arguably mostly a satcom company or then you can invest for the arguments i just made maybe in some of the regional launches that you think are going to be sovereign launches in some region that however in my mind requires then a really solid understanding of the politics whatever region you're talking about that's not our strength we understand space technology we're not political lobbyists so this is a difficult that's a that's a useful that's a useful distinction that's a useful insight and 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 sorry i should i I shouldn't say this strongly so to some extent we do understand the politics because you can't do space without understanding some of the politics but really like oh understanding i don't know certain european countries politics to that depth to judge them and 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 when basically a space company success maybe almost entirely dependent on this political assessment is a difficult one and the last thing i would say about this is uh, which is also another reason why we wouldn't do this sort of like uh, you know bet on a sovereign launcher is you know for our investor base which is uh, many many family offices which share our vision that space is important for humanity and we should drive the technology stack ahead and we should work on things that you know solve some of humanity's big uh, big issues they'd almost be disappointed if we make money just because for political reasons okay 
I love that. I don't know if you noticed, there's a lot of activity in the in the chat. You've got uh, Michael Meeling, co-founder of mm. Starbridge. I think you know him already. And then Dr. Doug Plata. So interesting chat. I'm not going to try and read all that. There's a, lot, there's a lot of stuff going on there. But I want you to maybe weigh in on some of the topics they're talking about. What do you think about tourism, space tourism, uh, as a field, as a market, as a phrase, as providing an early marker for point-to-point suborbital. What are your thoughts there? And I just want to respect, we've got about 20 minutes or so. Thanks again for coming yeah, sure. on. <laughs> I can try to keep my answers a little bit short. Um, space tourism, I, I, I love space tourism. And you know, some people may criticize me now. Oh, why, why, why do I love to like the billionaire joyrides? But, you know, I think, I think it's important in many ways. And first of all, not all of this I would really characterize as tourism, right? There's some parts which yeah, probably correctly are characterized as tourism if it's a very short ride and people don't really have sufficient time to do anything. But even on the very short rides frankly a lot of people try to do at least something but you know once you get to something like speaking about the current space tourism of course this is also going to evolve but you get something like you know the the axiom trips to the iss i mean i think it was today that axiom released more details on its axiom 2 mission right and those guys are engaging in experiments they're really trying to sort of like you know select stuff and then and do some hands-on work and i think you have to respect that i mean they they're trying to help out they're trying to be private space explorers in a way not pure tourists right. having said all of that you know even if they were just pure tourists the money they, they spend this is still well a the money they spend is still helpful to the industry and i forget that we can go back and look it up but i think at some point in time elon said that yusako mezawa japanese billionaire who booked this is the the, the circumlunar flight the apollo 8 type mission i think elon literally said that that money he paid was not an immaterial contribution to starship right. r&d right. the number is not known but you can sort of triangulate that it's somewhere probably about half a billion dollars or so something in that range so it's it's serious money and yes of course it helps um, for the R&D type stuff and then I also think that the tourism stuff you know it brings in my mind anything that brings awareness um, to our industry is is helpful I mean of, of course it should be done in the right way and I, I do think that you know people like the, the AX1 and AX2 and, and AX1 I also had the pleasure to kind of you know, follow in some more detail and I went to a reception for, for the AX uh, in Israel a few weeks ago and basically like almost a half day conference just on the scientific results of the mission so that kind of tourism I think is quote unquote tourism I would really rather call it private space exploration it's, it's great and and, and and it's one of the few it's one of the few businesses where it's proven you can make revenue right now i was uh i was pretty vocally against tourism as a concept in the earliest days back in when i started this 2001 2003 2005 i was watching i, I was on the airfield when uh when the original launch of the x prize was won so I, I had a lot of doubts a lot of concerns way back when 15-ish years 20-ish years ago uh and i'm not going to sit here and say i told you so but i i definitely thought that that it was a is a more challenging environment than people were taking i think they were taking it for granted it is interesting to me that virgin is really struggling today do you have any thoughts on on virgin what happens next what are your predictions if you had money there are you happy about it or angry about it where where, where are you which, which 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 one i guess i guess they're probably both struggling but the galactic or, or well i guess i'm I, I guess i'm kind of thinking about some of the stuff that branson and team did for the early spac i was uh, i was pretty surprised i was kind of against the launching the spac when they did it how they did it 
it launched a whole industry of space specs, but I don't know that that was good for the industry. And I, I said so a couple of times um, publicly, but, but you think they're going to, you think the, the space specs are going to come back. You think that there's going to be a resurgence for them later. You said all markets come back. So uh, I want to, I want to clarify that. So, I mean, sort of the Wall Street guy and me and, and everybody can go back and sort of actually read up on that history. Facts are not a new thing. They kind of come and go and it's not just space, right? Yeah. So we're aware of this now because we're in this industry and this is the first time there has been a wave of space specs, right? But this was in parallel with like, God knows how, how many other like tech specs were going. Back, on. back in uh, 1996, people asked me to do a reverse merger back when it wasn't called a SPAC, it was called a reverse merger. It was the same mechanics exactly. Yeah, that's, I mean, if it's a true reverse merger, then it's, well, let's not get into the details of that. I don't know, otherwise the investment banker is going to come out in me and we should talk more about space. But this is the actual SPACs, yeah, and I mean, this seems to be like a wave roughly around every 10 years. I, I don't know why. Um, so it probably come back again at some time. And, and, and frankly, we do have a very ancient, relatively ancient space back. I mean, people are radio public virus back as well, but long before the more recent spec wave. So so these things come and go, you know, it's, it's very tough when they happen. If you're one of those companies, right? If you're a CEO, if you're on the board of one of those companies at that time, you may think what is happening, the fact that you can raise hundreds of millions of dollars in a half-day roadshow, well, that, that's that, that's the spec sponsors, right? And then the merging is even quicker to some extent. It's ridiculous, but you're in a tough position, right? Because even if you think this is unhealthy, it may have disadvantages in the end, like what if you at the time don't do it, but your competitor does and suddenly yeah. has like 200 million, 200 million more of you, right? And there was a few months, there was a, a period of a few months when that really was sort of the case where I think everybody had to go through that thought process with their board. It's like, this seems sort of strange and weird and it's probably wrong, but what if we don't do this and our competitor does, right? And so this is why I think like, you know, one reason all of these deals then happened very quickly, the obvious candidates got picked off and then the, the window closed very quickly again. I mean, the window was sort of, the real window was roughly open between like summer of what was that 2020 and March, April, 2021, yeah. something like that. Sure. I mean, what is a little bit disappointing is that then those companies, but some of the companies, if they timed it exactly right, did take in not insignificant amounts of money, right? I think now to basically fail because you're running out of money is a bit shameful. It's pretty surprising. I mean, I look at, I, I like Redwire. I mean, I'm going to say it. I like the people there. All of my friends that were there in leadership positions have recently left. So it's a different organization than it was when it started but at the acquisition strategy i thought was pretty smart acquiring businesses that make money i thought that was pretty smart so i don't think that and this is this is me as an outsider right i know the space field but not the investment field the way you do but i thought that there were some smart things that were done in some of the cases, um, uh, I'm glad that I wasn't putting money into SPACs during those days, right? Uh, with those really mm -hmm. high valuations. Um, let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's go back to uh, your investment thesis. What would you? And we only have about ten minutes left. Describe the perfect company for uh, for your fund. What, what 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 like? Who are you looking for in terms of people? The technology. Of course, you're going to get pitches after this. But you know, tell tell us about the you know the perfect 
if you were to kind of make a perfect pitch, who who is that? What whether what what's missing in your portfolio that you want? So one big one big sort of thesis we have going on at the moment is what I always describe as a move from infrastructure towards applications. And this is again I can draw parallels to the internet. What I mean by that is basically that so far space space industry and frankly a lot of probably most of the space investment particularly by dollars has been focused on the infrastructure side. And I could also put it in terms of upstream downstream. I just like the infrastructure application because it has direct um, sort of semantic comparison to the yeah. internet. What I mean by that is infrastructure would be basically things like launchers, satellite constellations, even space stations, right? Everything you need to sort of like operate in space, go to space and operate in space. I actually tend to think that by now we have a reasonable amount of infrastructure. I mean, of course, there are gaps, right? So it's like, oh, where's our lunar infrastructure? But okay, let's, I, I get that, right? But sort of like for Earth orbits, we have, I think, a reasonable amount of infrastructure either already in place or it's coming online over the next few years and is already like financed. So I, I'm, I'm relatively comfortable that there is quite a lot of usable infrastructure up there. Right. Which then means, especially as a very early stage venture capitalist, which by definition has to look a few years out, my, my attention is now shifting to like away from the infrastructure, not completely, right. not hundred percent, right. right? We're still looking at infrastructure, but probably the majority of my, my attention is shifting away to thinking about, well, what kind of useful revenue generating applications can we actually run on top of this infrastructure? Okay. Right. Yeah. And whether that's infrastructure is, um, you know, certain satellite constellation. And so I give you a couple of examples of what that means actually on the application side. So the really obvious example, which everybody knows is of course, basically downstream of observation companies, right? The infrastructure exists. You have like God knows how many sensor suites up there already. There are more being put up, including by some already well-financed companies. So high chance it's going to happen. And probably very, very few gaps at this point in time. There still are some and we're looking at them on the infrastructure side, but a lot of infrastructure is up there, right? So you can use Nexus to satellites. So now the question for us is what kind of downstream EO applications can there be, which are really useful probably to some specific target sector on earth, whether that's, you know, oil and gas or mining or whatever. And uh, can we find good companies um, basically building those applications. Now there, the current issue is that we're getting those business plans. However, almost 100% are not perfect in the sense that those types of business plans where you're building an application for a specific target market on Earth basically require interdisciplinary knowledge by definition, right? You need you need to know the space side. Let's take the downstream your company. So you need somebody ideally who, who understands, not ideally, you need somebody who understands like, okay, what kind of space data is up there? Like what kind of sensors up there? What kind of data? Like how do we get the data? Right? But then you also, let's say then you want to serve the mining sector. Well, you should have a person who actually knows the mining right. sector. What, what is useful for the mining sector? How does that fit into the existing work stream? How does it even, like mundane stuff, how does it even fit into the existing IT systems? And on the second part is basically we are almost 100% of pitches we receive fail. I mean, there are some exceptions, but typical scenario, and again, this is actually one of the things that tells me how early on we are, is that the founding team is basically a couple of Aero Astro guys who met at graduate, graduate school, right? And... They want to serve the mining sector, but they not, they, not they all they were all and, you know, and, at, at Blue or 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 SpaceX, right? They have that. They have the chops to fly. Yeah, and that's, and that's great. And and, and, and but in fairness, the sort of the people who are coming out of those companies, they I think they're they tend to know their capabilities, and they're very good on the infrastructure side. So you get some really exciting companies. I mean, you talk about that. You get some really exciting companies who come out of SpaceX and Blue. I mean, just just Blue, right? Relativity, Stoke, fantastic company. Right. Some others which I think are not public, uh, which are still stealth. But yeah, but they tend to be on the on the infrastructure side. But on the vacation side, we have this 
you have this issue, lack of interdisciplinary teams. It, but it also tells me how early on we are. And frankly, I'm old enough to remember this for the internet. The first, the first internet companies, basically, the founders were computer science people like Mark Andreessen. Yeah. And then it took a while to get other people in. This is actually one big reason why I'm doing outreach, because we need to attract these other people, the North Space people, to the space sector to build this type of company. So yeah, downstream is always one applications example. Another um, example that we're really excited about is, uh, is in-space manufacturing for okay. material science and biotech purposes on Earth. I mean, in fact, we're, and then we're actually facing the same issue again, which is that ideally, not ideally, I think it does require an interdisciplinary team. Let's say you want to do something with like, you know, biotech manufacturing in space. God forbid, but we're actually seeing this, you're like aerospace engineers trying to do this. It's like, they have no business trying to do that. Right. This has to be biotech people who then use platform that's operated by aerospace engineers. Fine, but that's the right way to do it. But again, we're seeing total lack of interdisciplinary teams, but this is something we're so excited about and there's a lack of team. We basically just recently co-founded a company ourselves in space biotech. We just put the right team together. And, and yeah, so that's another example of an application that we're really excited about. So in our last four minutes, let's talk about that recent investment because that's not normal. That's not usual for a VC company. Uh, you know, they might have an entrepreneur in residence program, but they'll build the company outside. Is, is that what you did? Yeah. So how does it happen in practice is, so we co-funded the company outside of the fund and it's now going through the process where the fund is evaluating and, and it's going to invest in it. I mean, this is something which, I mean, there's, there's a whole model, which is called venture studios, which is basically this, right? You sort of take an idea and run with it and like put, put the company together. We're not originally set up as a venture studio, but because of these dynamics of it, the space sector is right now, me and my partners, two partners, we've always said from the very beginning, we might very well end up in situations where we think there is a very significant opportunity. The sector is so early on, there is no team doing it yet. So we're willing to kind of engage in venture studio type activity on a very limited basis. The, the sort of like very simplistic way we decided is with three partners, we said, well, this is a certain time commitment if this happens, because then probably means that one of the partners is very heavily involved. So we said, we're going to do one max per partner. Okay. So it would be three for the entire fund. We're like one down so far. Well, fingers crossed. That's uh, that's certainly very exciting. What, what is that new business going to do? What what hole are they trying to fill? So this new business, we believe, has the best technology in the world to grow human three-dimensional human tissue and microgravity. Wow. Um, because of the, the microgravity, you, that, that allows you to grow the human tissue very cleanly in three dimensions without scaffolding or matrices, which has certain advantages. We're basically licensed technology from big university. It's proven because the academic team has flown this two times to the ISS already and has produced various different tissue types extremely successfully. So it's kind of a little bit different in the sense that the technology is largely de risked and we're going to keep improving it, but the basic technology is largely de risk and is now about commercializing it. And um, this has basically two big, or sort of, I should say, three big use cases. One is just general life sciences research. Second is preclinical pre drug testing process as an alternative to animal models, which is something that has recently received significant regulatory tailwind in the US as something called the FDA Modernization Act was passed uh, by Congress and then signed into law by, by President Biden, which basically motivates and allows pharma companies to switch away from, from animal models like, like mice or zebra fish or monkeys and whatever. And then the third use is very exciting is in regenerative medicine. So we could grow these tissues and they could then be used really to, you know, you, you could grow cartilage and, you know, replace like worn out cartilage in your knee. And then of course, the sort of dream a few years down the road is to replace parts or even entire organs. That's going to take a little while for sure. Yeah. That will happen. And I think we're now at the forefront of that. So we're very excited with this company because that those all of those markets I talked about right now, those are the pharma pharma business on earth, the pharma sector, that's a big sector with a lot of money. Yeah.
So those are real, real target markets. Yeah, that's definitely got the attention of our, in the audience, uh, uh, Doug is a uh, medical doctor, he's an emergency room doctor. So he's asking questions about 3D tissue printing, you know, uh, can it be solved on earth? We do have to wrap up. I want to be really respectful of your time. Uh, it's it's two o'clock in the morning for you in Zurich. So uh, I, I want to just kind of uh, wrap up and, and, and say thank you. Super, super quick, because we almost missed it. You mentioned your outreach efforts. Talk about your podcast a minute, and I'm going to post the link to uh, to the show and the chat here. Yeah, so this is interesting. The original idea for the podcast this is very creatively named the Space Business Podcast, even though it's not only about business anymore, is, is is basically what I mentioned before that I think it's hugely important to educate more people about the space sector, people who haven't drunk the Kool-Aid yet. I mean, we all have, right? right? right. But as I said, we need like a lot more you know, workforce, investors, and just general supporters in the space sector if we really want to grow to these trillions of dollars of market size that people are hoping for. And this is a Originally, I started doing this is like, you know, and, and I, you know, I know that probably the majority of listeners are still people from the space sector, and that's fine, you know, but I'm, I'm trying, hopefully it's reaching some people beyond the space sector, that was the original idea as well. We always keep it very non-technical. The typical guest is a, you know, space entrepreneur. CEO of some startup that I interview about the startup, you know, what the startup is, why they're doing it, uh, in detail of the business model and so forth. Sometimes we have just other interesting people from, from the larger space family on there. So uh, Chris Hatfield was on there, Professor Avi Loeb from Harvard was on there. So every few episodes we get somebody who's not, not a business person. All right, Raphael, thank you so much. Uh, try to get some sleep. Uh, I know you've got a busy day tomorrow. So thanks so much for being a part of this. I appreciate your kind of perseverance through some of the technical issues we had. This, uh, this afternoon, and uh, I'll I'll ping you later this week. I want to I want to follow up on a few things. All right, thanks a lot, sir. Thanks, Have a good night. All the best. Sleep well. Bye bye.